Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Lori. And we're the Sex Positive Christian Feminists. Hello, and welcome to another Tuesday morning with the Sex Positive Christian Feminists. How are you doing today, Rachel? I'm good. How are you doing? You were sharing a little bit before about your adventures in Italy and going to your hometown. Yes. So I do ancestor work with some of my students and we talk about how do we connect back to our ancestors. And one of the things that I really feel like everyone should do is go back to the land of your ancestors, which I figured if I'm telling people to do it, I need to take my own medicine and I need to go back to it. So I've been to Italy many times. Um, but I haven't been to where my great grandmother was from, which is a town called Buena Bergo in uh, Campania, which is, for those who don't know, that's the same state that Naples is in. But she's not, she did not live, she lived like a three hour drive from Naples. Um, and it's in the mountains and it has a bunch of like olive groves and sheep. And there's more sheep than people there. Um, there's 1,700 people in the whole town. But what I didn't expect, I had all the churches saved on my Google, uh, my Google uh, map. And I was just going to go visit all the churches. I figured I'd have lunch and then go home. And I was thinking I was going to be there for like maybe two hours. So I get there. I'm, I'm with my partner. We park the car. And then we just start walking. And it was incredible. There were all these. It's, a, it's medieval. Like there's like modern sections of the town, but there's whole section that is just all full walking with stones that are medieval. Like they have not been replaced since that period. I posted some pictures on Instagram and I'm sure I'll be posting more, but they, it was incredible. There's also, I mean, I knew this probably was going to be likely there's a lot of abandoned houses in Italy, especially in these towns. And so a lot of abandoned houses, which my whole historical nerd self was like, do not go into the houses, do not go into the houses, you will probably die, something will fall on you. But I was still like, peeking into the windows and like trying to like, <laughs> see what these old houses were like. But it was incredible, because there are, there's really only two churches. So, and which is also really exciting, because some of the pews are dedicated to like, my great, great uncle, and who died i knew him didn't go to america so he like died and it was dedicated by my great great grandmother so he died before her and so she dedicated a bench to him and so stuff like that which is really exciting to see and then the third place that i thought was a church is a sanctuary that was built in 1100 because there was a mary sighting there where this shepherdess was with her sheep she was mute she, a Mary, Mary appeared to her, she was in a blue dress. And I'm not quite sure because I'm using Google Translate to understand the story. She either gave her the statue or the woman found the statue afterwards. And either way, this, there's a sanctuary built to this image of Mary. And it was originally a black Madonna. Of course, it's now white because that tends to be what happens during restorations, unfortunately. But uh, it was really incredible. And what the other cool thing that I found out was that every day, people go into the sanctuary and pray to her. 
And part of the prayer is praying for everyone who left the town. So it was so incredible to be like, okay, so this prayer has been said every single day since my great grandmother and great grandfather left this town over me, like over her, over my father, my grandmother, my father, and me for the past hundred years by this little town. And it was just really intense and really moving to realize that that was going on. And yeah, go to your home, go to that little town in whatever country. Um, and I know, unfortunately, this is a privilege that many white people get to do and not necessarily everyone who is probably listening to this, but go as close as you know you can and find out what's going on because it was really shocking and it was really cool. And I love how like your love of Mary is, it just feels like, oh, maybe oh. there's something there where it was being pulled, you're being drawn to her through both the prayers that are being said at the church, but then also just this is part of your history and your tradition and part of how your lineage honors the divine feminine. I, I think this also goes back to something I said in one of our podcasts about like, how do you know your ancestral stuff? Like, how can you really find the historical information? You can't, but like, you just kind of have to sometimes trust your soul's response to something. And like, my mom thought I was so crazy for being like, I need my grandmother's rosary, send it to me now. And I was like, I don't know why I need it. I just need it. She's <laughs> like, I do, I do think there's something mystical happening in those moments where we are being drawn to something for reasons outside of our understanding and we don't need to understand it. So like, if you're also like, don't know your family's ancestry, but you're like, I really, really, really need to go to this place. Like you actually might just follow that pull because you might, you don't know what you're going to discover there. But this is not what we're talking about today. <laughs> Right. <laughs> That's just our intro. Um, we wanted to talk about Gnosticism yeah. today, in part because we've realized that there's a variety of definitions for Gnosticism, and they get sort of, the word Gnosticism gets thrown around with all three of these definitions, but, and it can cause some conflicts. Like, I know I had a conflict with somebody on my Instagram where he was like, don't be so anti-Gnosticism. And I was like, no, 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 but I, I am going to be anti-Gnosticism because this is what this means. And I'm opposed to that idea, but he was defining Gnosticism differently. And that's not the Gnosticism that I'm opposed to, but it's also like, that's not really how I would define Gnosticism. So we just wanted to parse that out because we're sure that if it's hitting us, it's probably going to, you might run into it as well. And it would be helpful to parse out like, oh, what is this? And what are examples of these three different definitions of Gnosticism? Where do they show up? Who are reputable sources? All those kinds of things. Um, so Lori, do you want to share the three different kinds of Gnosticism? Yes. I think we started our conversation for this podcast saying there's two definitions. And then we found out there's three. Um, or we kind of have determined that there's three. There's the academic philosophical definition which is about separation of the soul from the body and that we need to fully move towards something spiritual and that is a separation of our soul and body and that and you can correct me if i'm wrong rachel i feel like that dates back to the greek so that's a pre-christian yeah that's a pre-christian thing and 
it was happening a lot in ancient Greece when Christianity was around, but it's not, and it was considered a heresy in Christianity. But the other term for Gnosticism is used a lot in church history. And that is kind of an umbrella term for all the heresies that didn't make the cut in Christianity. And it really just like all the churches, all the Christian movements that just didn't make the cut. And so after essentially, I guess you could say the Nicene Creed or Council of Nicaea in the late 300s, it was officially decided that all those other things were also, where they were just called Gnostic. Like, I'm sure if we were talking to the church fathers and we were like, well, Gnosticism, do you mean like the Greeks or do you mean like these Montanists, which were just a bunch of ladies who were essentially just prophesizing with their hair uncovered? Right. They would probably say, well, it doesn't count as Orthodox and therefore it's Gnosticism. And then the final kind of Gnosticism that we were discussing is like New Ageism Gnosticism. And this we see... I mean, if you're in New Age communities, you probably see it all the time, but it it's still it sort of views Gnosticism as like a deeper, richer, more more close to source form of spirituality. But when you really start to interrogate it, it still seems to be placing the soul or the mind as more important and more valuable than the body or the material reality. And so it becomes Gnostic. So when we're talking about the Gnostic texts that are heresies, a lot of times, I mean, first off, a lot of times when we talk about these heresies, we're talking about like such nitty gritty, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin sort of differences between what is considered heretical and what's considered orthodox. And a lot of us, a lot of the things that I learned were heresies. I was like, oh, I totally believed that at some point in time over the course of my history as a Christian. And I've also met a lot of people that believe that sort of in a, I want to use the word colloquial, um, but in like sort of a popular way of practicing practical theology sense, where like we actually look at what do people believe in their practices, a lot of times they fall into these categories that, that are technically heretical, but no one would know that because none of us are sitting there studying all of these heresies that really are parsing things out just like ever so slightly bit by bit. Um, And a lot of the texts that we're talking about, things like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene or the Gospel of Thomas, they get put into this category of Gnostic Gospels because there's something just a tiny bit off between what would be considered Orthodox and what these texts talk about, which is interesting because even when you read like the normal four gospels that we all know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, there are lines in there that actually do sound a little heretical depending upon which translation you're reading and depending upon how you're interpreting what the text is saying. So not to say that all the gospels are heretical, but any text has the possibility of being heretical if we are interpreting it incorrectly. So if you're somebody who's like, no, 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 but I love the gospel of Mary Magdalene, or I love the gospel of Thomas, or I love the gospel of, there's a bunch of them. So pick your favorite, Judas. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm calling you heretical. Also, I don't care if you believe in heresies. <laughs> I don't care. Um, but knowing that like these are being termed that because of some weird heretical thing that they think that is in there, but may or may not be there. But when we call things 
Gnostic Gospels, usually what we're referring to are actually these non-Kamani texts. And for those of you who don't know what the non-Kamani texts are, they are a collection of early Christian and Gnostic texts that were discovered in an Egyptian town of Nagamadi around 1945. And a lot of times this, it was, it was a little um, scary for people because a lot of these texts were not things that we had known about. They weren't things that people were familiar with and therefore it felt threatening to their understanding and their belief around what Christianity was teaching and what Christianity was about. Now, these texts are, are wide in their variety, and so some of them were, were traditional things that we, we did already know about, and some of them were things that we didn't know about yet. And so the things that we didn't know about yet, we had to actually say, oh, well, they actually do fit into this narrative of the history of Christianity, and how do we make sense of that new history of Christianity that we understand through these texts? It's very likely when, after the Council of Nicaea, when all these different groups were considered heretical, that all the texts that were being written that were considered heretical texts for all the reasons Rachel talked about, like these sometimes just variant differences, were outlawed. And there was a Coptic uh, monk or priest who had these texts and buried them. And then they were discovered thousands of years later. So a lot of people, when they came out that these things had been found, a lot of people went on a lot of not assumptions that are not really in line with the way we understand and interpret historical texts. So if you're interested in understanding these more in depth, Eileen Pagels, who's a professor at Princeton, she has a really wonderful YouTube where she, I think she looks at the Gospel of Thomas and compares it to another gospel and talks about what Rachel's talking about, where there's a few differences, but there's actually a lot of similarities in like the messages of what they're getting across. And so we don't entirely know fully why these are heretical entirely. But a lot of people, which has led to this new age definition, have jumped on these bandwagons about what these texts are saying that are not, they're just not in the, in, in the actual text. And I remember when I was in um when i first read the text in grad school i was so prepared to be like reading things that had nothing to do with anything i had thought about before to be really wild and crazy and weird and i was just like yeah it sounds it sounds pretty not normal to me nothing too crazy here there are lang there's different language like Mary Magdalene uses the term powers to refer to like I we would call it now like more like a shadow like she's not even necessarily calling it sin but it doesn't seem wild she's just kind of saying there are, there are parts of you that keep you from being one with God and we need to move on from those parts of ourselves so there's not really that many crazy things. So those are the Nag Hammadi texts. I want to highlight a couple of things. One is that um, Elaine Pagels, not Eileen Pagels, just mm -hmm. so that if you're trying to find her, Elaine is her first name. Um, but the other thing is that when we're talking about the Council of Nicaea or these early, when you look at early, early Christianity, there were multiple Christianities. And so we have to think about it that way, where there wasn't the internet, there wasn't 
super reliable mail. So these stories are being of Jesus are being shared mostly verbally through oral tradition, and then some people are writing stuff down. And so you actually have different communities that have ever so slightly different belief systems in the same way that today, if we were to go into a Seventh-day Adventist church, yes, they are they are believing in Jesus and they're part of Christianity, but their belief systems are radically different from the Methodist church that's down the street. And so in the same way, you had these different groups of Christians that had slightly different experiences and slightly different preferences for how they worshipped and who they worshipped most and who were the people that they really revered. And so you've got people like, you know, the the people who had the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, they really revered Mary Magdalene in the same way that the people who were studying the Gospel of John and the Joannine writings, that's the fancy word for writings that were done under the school of John, right? So it's not even like everything is by John, but if you read his, his letters, they're not actually by him. They're by the people who liked John's ideas most, which is going to be different from the people that liked Mark's ideas most or Matthew's or Luke's or, you know, these different communities. The Pauline community is going to be different. And so there's not necessarily this like better or worse. It's just that there was such a plethora of different experiences and ideas that were out there that eventually we, uh, this is an interesting thing that I learned from Bart Ehrman's course. He has an amazing great courses course on the history of early Christianity. And that's mostly where this is from, but you can also read his books. He's a professor at one of the universities in the research triangle in North Carolina. <laughs> I'm like, not sure which one, um, but like Raleigh Durham area, but he was talking about basically like this council was mostly to consolidate power of the Roman empire. And so you needed to have something that was really clearly defined. So we couldn't have this like hodgepodge mix of all these different kinds of Christianities. He wanted to really consolidate them in order to have power. And as a result, you ended up with these Gnostic texts that had to be hidden as Laurie was just saying, and they've sort of come out of hiding over the course of the past hundred 150 years because of the amount of um, archaeological digs we're doing and things that we're finding. Sometimes they get found in some weird ways where like somebody's just like searching through their grandmother's house and what is this old jar? And they open it up and they're like, oh, wow, this is papyrus. What do we do with this? Um, I think the other thing that I think one of the reasons why the Nag Hammadi texts are so seductive to people and they're cool, like read them. When I say like it wasn't that radical or life changing, like that doesn't mean that they, I didn't learn things. It didn't like affect my spirituality. Mary Magdalene's text, I had assigned it to my students. I think that she talks a lot of, I think she, the way she talks about sin and I think is really useful and healing in a lot of ways. Um, but I just mean that like, I don't understand why they're a heresy any more than some other denomination of Christianity that we would participate in today and not think was crazy would be considered a heresy. Although I'm sure the early church fathers and some Catholics probably do think they're heresies, but um, but evangelicals are also heretics. So, in according to the Catholic Church. So, anyways, so I think that there is a way that um, there's a way that there we also see that there was a messages and ideas that the Council of Nicaea, as a result of the Council of Nicaea and Constantine, there was this way of intentionally shutting down certain branches of Christianity, particularly because, and I think this is something that people don't know, Constantine did not outlaw the pagan religions. 
that was Justinian. That was him who had all the temples torn down. And um, that was years later. So Constantine didn't outlaw pagans. They outlawed these groups. He outlawed groups of Christianity that weren't in line with these councils. And the why they were heresies is really questionable. Something like Montanism. And when I read the texts that are written about Montanism, I think it's because women were leaders. That seems to be the only thing that the church fathers have against them because they really grind in on the fact that women are leading that, that movement. And so for Mary Magdalene's text, I would say that it probably does have something to do with a woman being a focus of the movement. And for, and the Gospel of Thomas also like elevates Mary. So there's a way in which there seems to be something bothered about the way that women are elevated. So I do think there's sexism involved in it. But I also don't necessarily think that it was, I don't think it was like a bunch of guys got together and they were like, get Mary Magdalene. I think it was very much more social in social understandings of gender and patriarchy at the time. I just want to offer, if you're somebody who's more orthodox, the perspective you're going to have or the things that are traditionally said about what these texts do and what makes them heretical is this idea that perhaps some of them are more Gnostic in the philosophical sense of the word. So what that, and that's why it sort of gets paired in with like Nag Hammadi texts get called the Gnostic gospels. And that version of Gnosticism is basically something where instead of believing that if we are doing good works and we believe in Jesus as our savior or whatever it is that your specific church has taught you is how you get to heaven. Instead of that, it's this idea that we have to know the right thing. And if we have the correct understanding, then we will go to heaven. Um, And so it becomes very much like it suppresses our bodies and, and doesn't believe that our bodies are that important either to salvation or to our understanding of what it means to be a human person. And it's more about our mind and our knowledge and what we know. And that's the thing that if you're coming from a more conservative space, like what I was taught about Gnostic Gospels growing up was that they were the texts that didn't value the body as much as they needed to in order to be truly Christian. Having read those texts, I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's generally like the more conservative um, Orthodox perspective on why those texts are called Gnostic and what makes them heretical which sort of easily goes into like, that's what Gnosticism is defined as when it's a philosophical principle. It's really talking about, um, which is one of those definitions of Gnosticism. So we've got like Gnostic gospels that are called that because they're supposedly coming from this Gnostic philosophy. And the philosophy is basically that it talks about Sophia wisdom, but it's more so like we need to identify fully with wisdom over and above our bodily orientation. And it's better to do things like asceticism, like ascetic practices where you don't eat as much as you really need to or want to, and you wear uncomfortable clothing and you flog yourself with self-flagellation stuff, or you deny your desires for pleasure of any kind, because those are going to pull you more into the material world and more into your body. And that's less holy. Whereas What true Christianity is all about is this idea of the incarnation. Um, Lori, do you have anything to add to that? 
Well, yeah, and I also wanted to say, because you brought up the aesthetics. And so I also wanted to say that it seems like even though that the reason why these texts were considered heretical, even though as Rachel and I both agree, we were like, well, this isn't really that antibody, but okay. Um, the reasons that that was considered heretical was because of the separation of the body. But then as Christianity grew, it also developed its own separation of the body as well. And I also love asceticism for other reasons because of the way that they like associate desire with like pulling us towards God. But I would still participate in the desire as well. I'll eat the chocolate cake and I'll appreciate that the chocolate cake points me towards God. Um, I don't need to not eat chocolate cake for my desire for chocolate exactly. cake to pull me close to God. I can eat the chocolate cake and experience God's divinity through yes. the taste of the chocolate cake. <laughs> and I think the point is for me, and I don't know if this is where you were getting Rachel as well, if we're agreeing with this or not, but I think we are, is that the Nag Hammadi texts have some things that I'm kind of like, have some ideas that I'm like, okay, I'm not necessarily going to jump on board with that. Just like traditional Christianity from the Ni Council of Nicaea, I also don't necessarily want to get on board with either. So it's, um, it doesn't really seem that terrible to me to engage with these texts in the same way that I would count engage with any other ancient text. Yep. That's exactly how I feel. And I know that like, personally, I can remember one of my very first, um, one of my best friends, Anuj, is amazing. I love him so much. Very dear friend. Our very first hangout was a multiple hour brunch that included reading the Gospel of Thomas in Tompkins Square Park. And we sat there and we went line by line. We started by just like having a normal brunch that was like an hour, an hour and a half. And then we went for like several more hours <laughs> reading the Gospel of Thomas line by line. And we went through it because the Gospel of Thomas, if you're not, if you've never read it, it's not like a story in the same way that we think of like Gospel of the Gospels that we know of really easily. It's more like these little lines and sayings, more like if you were to read Proverbs. Um, and so we went line by line and chatted through them as like, how do you interpret this? How do I understand this? And we had this very intense, very long brunch. Um, and it was beautiful. And it really felt enriching. And this is from somebody who's coming from a Catholic background and Anuj is coming from um, a Hindu background. And so... But both of us are like open to a variety of other traditions. He really loves Jesus. I really love Hinduism. So it's a great mix. Um, but I think that's the sort of thing where like, if you really want to chew on these texts, like go ahead and do it. It's not like you're going to go to hell for it. It's just a matter of like, how do you want to engage with the text and, and see what's what's valuable in it for you? Not that there aren't those weird lines. Like the Gospel of Thomas has the weird line about like, oh, if you be, if you turn your body into a man's body, then you'll be able to go into heaven if you are a woman or something weird like that. That's weird. It's weird. I don't know how to interpret that in a, in a feminist way. It just feels weird to me. I'm sure there's something that could be interpreted. But I feel the same way about those lines in Paul about how, you know, it's better to not be married. So it is what it is. I feel like, I feel like it could, like there are ways that that can actually be seen as feminist if you understand the culture and the way that gender was understood in that culture and how women were considered unformed men. So I can see how there would be a way in which a woman needs to move herself towards something greater. And there's also like all sorts of examples of like virgin martyrs who dressed as men and like there was a way in which that made them celebrated and all sorts of issues that demonize femininity 
And we can talk about that also for another probably whole podcast. But yeah, I think there's a sense that I think the fear of them and then the over glorification of them, the idea that they somehow prove something is false about God, and then also that they somehow are terrifying and you shouldn't touch them is all very much over over dramatized and they're beautiful but then there's also something that we want to talk about and how there's also a lot of myth surrounding this and this has kind of come into like a new age space where people will make statements about the non-kamadi texts that are completely flat out false and have no historical backing and there's entire schools um and like coaches that you can hire that will be like this like mary magdalene was married to jesus and it's like Mm, it doesn't even really say that in the Nagamati text. So I don't think she was. They might have had sex, but they probably, like, according to the Nagamati text, they were probably having sex, but not necessarily married. And that changes the relationship heavily. So, Rachel, you want to talk a little bit about some of that oddity? Sure. I think that, I mean, as when I was in New York City and I was like, interested in in expanding my understanding of, of spirituality generally i think that it was really easy to fall into new ageism because that's it's easy to do um and there's nothing wrong with it like i know i was taught that new ageism would send me to the devil and that's not what i mean by this but knowing that those texts are not necessarily going to be as academically sound or historically sound as some other things might be and so one of the books that i think gets thrown around a lot is Woman with the Alabaster Jar, which I was super excited to read because as a massage therapist, that particular character in the Gospels is one of my favorite. I feel like very much attached to her because she is a massage therapist, essentially. Um, And that book is by Margaret Starbird, but it's completely ridiculous. (laughs) Um, It's totally based on like the Knights of the Templar and like these weird things that like are not really true. Um talking about how, like Lori was saying, Mary Magdalene was married to Jesus and they have a kid named Sarah and like all this stuff. And that's great. If that is helpful to you in a, in a, in a personal practice of your faith and it feels really important to you and it feels enriching, latch onto it and use it because most of what we believe religiously, they're mythologies. And so like, if it's helpful for me to use the framing of Adam and Eve, there's nothing better or worse about that than talking about Mary Magdalene being married to Jesus. And that's helpful to me also. So I'm not trying to say that's that's wrong, but just to know that like, that's not historically accurate in the same way that like Adam and Eve didn't really exist. Um, doesn't mean there's not something enriching in that story. It just means that's not historically accurate. Um, and a lot of times what we, what I have found in reading Gnostic texts is they are, you know, you've got these people that are channeling information from their spirit guides. And sometimes that channeling is historically accurate. And sometimes that channeling is just sort of not historically accurate. And so it's, it might be true to them. It might resonate with you and that's great, but it's knowing that just because something resonates to you, just because it enriches your spiritual life doesn't necessarily mean that it's historically accurate or true or factual. And we need to be able to discern those two things and sort of hold them in tension within ourselves and not say that like every belief you have spiritually has to be 
historically accurate or factual, but to know what what is and what isn't, I think is important. Yeah. How would you define that? Like we were sort of talking about it as like white bro bro dude Gnosticism. And I'm curious because you were also saying that like this seems to be more promulgated by men, but in the circles that I've been in, it seems to be more promulgated by women. So I wonder like, I'm just curious, like what, yeah. Who are you, who would you put into that category? Well, I'm not actually thinking of writers. I'm just thinking about people I encounter who tell me. <laughs> That's great too. <laughs> Can you name them all right now? So we just yes. out them as. <laughs> but I mean, there's a book called um, the Mary Magdalene, not the Mary Magdalene gospel, the Mary Magdalene text or the Mary Magdalene scripts. I'm only don't know names of writers or books. I only know the color of the book. So uh, let me just Google it real quick. Magdalene transcripts. Google, please fix this for me because it's not transcripts. Manuscripts. The Magdalene manuscripts. I believe that's what it's called, if that's correct. And this guy had a vision given to him by Mary Magdalene who appeared to him. And it told him that she was a priestess of Isis in Egypt. And that when Jesus was in Egypt, he met her and they got married or they were coupled together in this spiritual marriage. And she slept with him before he went to the cross. And that gave him the energy he needed to go to the cross and fully experience this transformative thing that is being emphasized, like being taught through the gospels. And there's this missing secret message that connects us back to ISIS worship. And there's a lot of connections that I hear that relate Mary Magdalene. The statement that comes up that Mary Magdalene wasn't a prostitute. She was actually Jesus's wife. That there is zero historical evidence for that zero historical evidence for that and also there it, i think it's the gospel of thomas does say she was his consort they might have slept together like i said before but we're not married and also i think for me when you consider her a writer of the gospels and you consider the the mythology around her story as a saint where she goes to this cave and she's lifted up by seven angels i mean seven days seven times a day by seven angels is that and she seven seven is used because seven is a holy number but she's lifted up and she has these transformative experience there's a convent right next to this cave that it was believed that she lived in and there's all these beautiful understandings of her being a significantly important spiritual leader the the aha moment about mary magdalene shouldn't be that she was fucking jesus it should be that she was a spiritual leader and it seems like and that, and there is maybe not, I don't know the, what a historian would say about um, the, what the, what the church has officially said is her, her items and her home and her space and her stories. But because that is a part of our tradition, about part of Christian tradition that is not disparaging towards her in any way, why are we thinking that it's redeemed? She's somehow redeemed because she, was having sex with Jesus. I don't really understand why that is. It feels very bro-ish to me 
like to talk about like she was a great leader but who was she fucking that's the real question I think that's what I take issue with also and it goes back to sort of what we were talking about last week um which now that I'm thinking of it I'm like what were we talking about last week we were talking about the virgin martyrs when we talked about virgin martyrs we were also talking about like why does their sexuality matter so much like why is what happening what's happening with their vaginas why does that matter as much as we're putting this to mean or uh, that was a terrible sentence Mm -hmm. excuse that sentence you know what I'm talking about um I feel the same way when we're trying to say like oh but Mary Magdalene was like either a prostitute or she was married to Jesus and you're like why does it matter what was happening like she was a human who was really holy and got what Jesus was saying a lot better than a lot of the dudes around her did and so can't we just take that as being the super important thing that like Mary got it. Um, And that I think is what's super beautiful about what's present in both the gospel of Thomas and the gospel of Mary Magdalene is it's like so obvious, especially in the gospel of Mary Magdalene where like every other line is Peter saying something stupid and her being like, you stupid men, you don't get this. Let me tell you what's really (laughs) happening here. Um, And I think that's what's so beautiful and empowering about that text is just to be like, yeah, she was a spiritual leader at the time. And historically speaking, we know that to also be accurate, that she wasn't just like cooking things for the men folk all the time. She was there because she was spiritually engaged in the conversations that Jesus was having. Um, And she was also funding it, but she was spiritually engaged in the process. And I think that's where her import comes from, not from was she fucking people prior to meeting Jesus or was she fucking Jesus? No, it doesn't matter either way. Or was she fucking people to fund Jesus's ministry, which, you know, if she was a wealthy woman in the ancient times, she might've been. Um, And the other thing that's also really significant is that, and I don't know if this study, I believe, came out three or four years ago that kind of shows through original texts that it's very likely that Mary, um, Martha's sister, and Mary Magdalene were the same person and that it's not actually two separate Marys. And so in our, and there's also a hagiography of Martha where she was going up to the caves in Southern France to see Mary and she battles Satan um, on the, on this beach. And it's very fascinating to me how we've removed that over time, Mary Magdalene, if, if this is correct, and I believe most scholars are agreeing that it's correct, then we've removed Mary, this woman who was studying and learning under Jesus's feet, instead of cooking in the kitchen, from this woman who we've decided is a prostitute. And we've had to create them to be two separate people because a woman certainly couldn't be having sex with Jesus or men and also be spiritual. Like we have, we have to reduce her to somehow being a sexual being and that being her significance in the narrative. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not down, but this is also getting we talked about how we really want to do a Mary Magdalene episode, and I feel like we're starting to, like, get Right, and I'm like, train. oh, but there's one more thing I want to say. <laughs> First off, that, like, <laughs> what I've looked at and what I've studied has said that there are two separate Marys. So if you – it doesn't – I would be – I, like, want to know I'll when we do that find. episode, let's have, like, the argument around, like, what is what 
I'll bring up the really article. To look at that. The other thing that I want to mention is that Cynthia Bourgeau's book on Mary Magdalene, um, the meaning of Mary Magdalene, what's the name of that? But she talks about Mary, like the Marys, as almost like the female cohort that's the foil to the apostles. Because there's like a bajillion Marys yeah. in the Gospels. Like you can count them and I can think off the top of my head of at least four or five. So like if we include Mary Magdalene and Mary of Mary and Martha, and I think like Mary was also the wife of some other dude that starts with a CL, like Cleopas or something. And then also mm-hmm. you've got Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's like a ton of them. And so he's, she sort of says, like, let's look at those Marys as actually, like, the apostles, but the female apostles. Um, and so it's an interesting mm-hmm. lens in which to read the Gospels, if you're interested in it, that's a little bit more feminist, um, to see them all as, like, a collective unit of his female apostles. Anyway, side note. But Gnosticism, back onto Gnosticism. Yes, let's go back to Gnosticism. I think there's also a desire to connect the Gospels for some reason to Isis. And it continues to come up over and over again where people will say Mary Magdalene is actually um, a priestess to Isis. Or there are ways that they try to connect Sophia to Isis. And it feels very much like a pulling back from the mystery cults. Which I also find interesting because I was researching a lot of Isis because the other thing that was in my ancestral hometown was the largest temple in the Roman Empire to Isis. So I was kind of like, my ancestors, if we go back 2,000 years, might have been hanging out in that temple too. So that was kind of cool. So I was researching a little bit about Isis and there are, and I talk about this in my book, which is not out yet and hopefully someday will be, but they talk about how, I talk about how there are similarities to Isis's narratives to the gospel, which doesn't necessarily mean that the gospel's made up. It doesn't, but it does mean that there were conversations and theological ideas that were happening in a soup around each other and people, ideas influenced each other, which happens all the time. But the, the need I feel like this desire to ignore the synchronicities that we actually have historical evidence of like the images of there are images of mary and black madonnas that mere images of isis and people suspect that there's synchronicity that was going on especially in folk areas around you know folk practices that were going towards isis or different goddesses and now have become focused on mary there's all different types of things that people have understood for synchronicity to take that away. I feel like from our grandmothers and to take that away from the traditions of indigenous communities. Cause I think that's also then happening. It's one thing to do it to European people, but it's a whole other thing when we start to do it to people in Mexico or South America and America that are indigenous to that land. It becomes deeply problematic to try to say this is who this is what the gospel, the Nahagamani texts are saying. This is what Gnosticism is. And this is the truth that Christianity has been trying to cover up. It's like, is it? Or is it just something an, else we're believing? It's an overreach of what those things are doing and the intention behind the actions that were taken to stifle them. And I think you spoke to that earlier of like, it's not necessarily mm-hmm. that 
people were trying to like put down women or people were trying to do something that was like stifling out something, but it was, the intention was to consolidate power within the institution so that it could spread more widely. And ultimately that is what it did. Um, not necessarily to, it didn't, yeah, it's, the intention was not good, but also the intention was not intentionally trying to like stifle things. It was just trying to consolidate power, which is, it's a subtle, subtle difference. It can do both things, but the intention behind the action was different from being like, let's try to keep us from ISIS worshiping. Right. Because it was, it's fucked up all on its own. Like we don't need to make it more fucked up. Did they want to, I mean, there is, I read something and a lot of these original texts are like there, we have sections of them or we have like snippets. We don't have the full thing, but there is this, this line from um, Philo where he's talking about how we really need to make sure people don't consider Christianity just like the other goddesses. So we have to make sure we only call the Holy Spirit he. And like, there's these, these statements, that might not be, that's not, that's not the quote, but it's something around like masculinizing the Holy Spirit so that we don't, people don't think that we are these other things. So while there was definitely interest in not being associated with the ISIS cults, of course, there was also, it wasn't specifically because of ISIS and because she had a truth that was to them super evil. They thought that she was a demon and that she needed to be suppressed and she was evil. They didn't think that she was powerful and good. Um, the, the interest in power is problematic all in on its own. We don't necessarily need to make it worse just to, to make it bad. Taking away people's religion and trying to take over other countries with it is a bad thing. The other thing I want to just mention is that when we look at Gnosticism as it shows up today, like in the new age community, which I'm using super broadly construed, um, is it does end up still being a little antibody, which I think is just really important to note that this subtle antibodiness is very rampant and very uh, present throughout our culture. There's another word for that that I wanted to use rampant in our culture sure rampant that sounds great <laughs> um yeah sometimes my vocabulary doesn't meet up to like the living with somebody with a phd for too long um but <sighs> basically the idea is that a lot of these these even some of like the meditation practices that are more new agey are oriented toward an idea that our soul is what lives on and that our soul is what we really are. It's not our body and our soul together. And I think being in a society where even in, within Christianity, as I was raised in it, the focus being on getting to the afterlife that's positive, getting to the good place, um, getting to heaven. That, and the thing that gets to heaven is not our bodies, but our souls only. And then eventually there will be a second coming where like everybody gets resurrected together and we can rejoin our bodies and souls together. That whole narrative, while it, the end point is body souls together. So they're like our, our, our idea of what we are as a human is these two parts of us together because there's this intermediary part of having our soul be separated from our bodies. And that's the part that we focus on a lot of times when we talk to little kids about 
what's the point of life? It's to get to heaven so that you can be with God. Like, if that's our focus, we start to detach and disidentify from our bodies from a very early age because it's our soul that matters more. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's what we need to protect against in our theologies, regardless of if they are under the umbrella of Christianity or under the umbrella of Gnosticism or under the umbrella of New Ageism, is how do we protect ourselves from believing that our real identity is our soul rather than the composite of our body and soul together? And that's super, super subtle. And it's really, really hard to do for me, at least. Like, I find that to be challenging to guard against where am I emphasizing my soul or where am I emphasizing my mind? Where am I identifying my soul as my mind? That's like super duper common. That is not what your soul is. Your soul is not your mind. It's not your thoughts. If you believe that your soul is your thoughts and your mind, I want you to do some more research on what its soul really is. <laughs> Feel into that a little bit more. It's something more subtle. Um, and that's, that's I think, where Gnosticism sort of is, is spread throughout the culture generally. And it gets really, really pushed in the more Gnostic spaces where people are like, oh yeah, I'm just so spiritual, man. And it's like, are you spiritual or are you just disidentified with your body because it's easier to live in your mind, in your imagination, than it is to live in your body and in the reality that our material world is really uncomfortable. Yeah. That's why I actually like Mary Magdalene's gospel because I feel like she talks about how you have to sit in the discomfort in order to to move forward. And that it's not necessarily about avoiding pain, it's about being with it. And I think, yes, I mean, I also get very frustrated when people feel disembodied. And I had a friend who was talking about how they're trying to connect to their body and so they're meditating on things like their knee and their elbow and their shoulder and like just being in their shoulder and just being in their knee. And I And I was so confused because I was like, no, like, <laughs> that's just not what I recommend. I recommend moving your hips. I remember, I recommend taking an embodiment course. I recommend, um, yes, pole dancing. Anything that is like erotic and connecting to your body on a soul level is much more important because what Rachel's talking about, what I'm hearing is like this, that's what happens when we move our hips and we move in that way, our soul meets our body and it like comes together. And it's like this beautiful relationship where they start to dance together. Um, not, I meant that metaphorically, but it is happening literally as well. So I think that, yes, we need to, we need to move away from that because when we're trying to aim for a lot of new age people will talk about moving into 5D, which my understanding about that is this like higher level of enlightenment that takes us away from the material world. And I don't want to go there if it means that I don't get to bring pleasure with me. And I think that, yeah, I'm not down. I'm not down with the pleasureless world, which is how it's described a lot. And so, yes, I mean, and, I mean, I could go on and on about pleasure, and so I won't. But I, I feel that I'm with you, Rachel. I think that we're creating Gnosticism in a way that it was happening with evangelicals, and it was happening with the Greeks, and it was happening with the ascetics, 
And it's something that I think that there's a push away from, and then we immediately go back into it. And so as people try to move away from purity culture, which was asceticism, they're now embracing some other form of asceticism that's really broken. Oh, and the other thing I wanted to say in Plato's Symposium, which is very, can be, I think, very much associated with Gnosticism in a lot of ways. I think Plato was a Gnostic. I could be incorrect about that. But he, there is a line in there that's not said by, um, by Socrates. And for those who don't know, Plato is writing about, Plato is writing scripts about this philosopher named Socrates. And Socrates basically is the one who talks about the erotic being this desire, this pursuit of something outside of yourself. But there's one person who's talking about Aphrodite and Eros. There's a guy and it's like the second speaker or something like that. And he says that there are two Aphrodites and there are two Eroses, one of the high and one of the low. And we need to worship both or else we're offending the other. Something along those lines. And there's this way in which he talks about how we elevate one over the other and we forget about the lower one, but the lower one is equally as valuable. And I think that that to me sums up, I think, our relationship with the mind and the soul is like there is a eros of the soul and then there's an eros of the body. And if we're not enjoying both of those, those experiences, then we are not fully moving in the direction of the divine. I like that. I don't really like Socrates' part of Symposium. I liked everyone else's so much more <laughs> every time I read it. So who knows what will happen the next time I read um, it. But... <laughs> yeah, because Diotima is supposed to be the one that's like, she's actually like living into Eros as opposed to all of the other people that are like speaking to it or intellectualizing it. And she's actually like just in it. Um. Yes, and there is a wit, and that is so. So Socrates starts to relay his conversation with Diotima, and in it, she is living into it. But then, in the end, his conclusion is that the erotic is like his emphasis for immortal, like immortality, and so like, and I feel like he's lacking the understanding of savoring. That's at least what I thought last time I finished it. <laughs> I don't know. This is not. This is not anything to do with maybe a little bit. Really. Well, maybe a little Gnostic. bit. But... Plotinus is really the one that we point to and we say, "Oh man, he was super Gnostic," because um, he's really, Got really it. pushing for. Got it. Let's let's get rid of this material world and let's move into something that's better. And the idea behind this is also like from the Greek perspective is we want to get to the thing that's unchangeable, that's not going to decay. And all the aspects of the material world decay. And therefore, because they're impermanent, they and they're constantly changing, that that is bad. And we want to get to a, something that is pure and unchanging and mm -hmm. perfect, which is why these ideas that are in our minds, which can be perfect and unchanging. Like, I can imagine the idea of a perfect circle, but I can't actually create a perfect circle in the material world. And therefore, the mind is so much more pure and better than the body and then material stuff. So it's very anti-materialistic um, in, in a way that I think is problematic because it denies reality. Regardless, that's sort of the general gist of that concept in case anyone's interested in the more philosophical component of why, <laughs> why we decide that the brain is better than the body. 
<laughs> and it's based on the Greeks. That's like super simple answer. It is. Yeah. A lot of this, a lot of this stuff is coming from the Greeks. And I think that's also, we can't move on from it and for better or for worse. Maybe there's some stuff that we're benefiting from that. I'm not aware it's that of super common question of like, what does okay. Athens have to do with Jerusalem? What do the Greeks have to do with Christianity, in case you're not familiar with that phrase? Because I know when I first heard it, I was like, I don't know, the Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> no, it's talking about, like, what's the relationship between Greek mytho- Greek um, um, philosophy and Christianity? <laughs> and that's sort of what we're getting at right now, is, like, yeah. this is the relationship between the two of them. I have so many thoughts running through my head right now that I'm... Yeah, I have all sorts of thoughts running through my head right now that I feel like could go in multiple different directions, but I think we might yeah. have come to a place that's relatively complete. Um, so stay tuned for our episode on Mary Magdalene because we are going to rant, I'm sure. <laughs> that's everything we have for you today. Thank you for joining us, um, even as we ramble through talking about Gnosticism. Um, as always, you can subscribe, like, and share. You can follow us on Instagram at sex positive Christian feminists. You can find me, Rachel, at rachel.alba.coaching, and you can find Lori at Lori Kimmerly. Um, if you're interested in learning more about feminist theology and erotic spirituality, you can check out Lori's programs and blog at www.lorikimmerly.com. And for Christian sex coaching and all good things spiritual embodiment, you can visit me at sexwithspirit.com. Again, we are the Sex Positive Christian Feminists, and we will see you next week for another conversation about sexuality, spirituality, and feminism. Thanks.